Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with modern-day New York City jazz tenor saxophonist John Ellis. From a small town in North Carolina, he has made his way to New York City to become one of the busiest and most talented cats in the jazz world today. On the heels of releasing his latest album called Charm, teamed up with the New Orleans-centered band Double Wide, he talked about a wide range of things, from running his own label, Paradise Light Records, what it's been like to perform with so many accomplished musicians over the years, who has inspired him, what may be next, and exactly who he thinks he is, along with much, much more. Dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thank you for taking some time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. So let me go ahead and dive in right here. I know you're a busy man. Give me an idea of what's been going on lately as far as gigs and projects. Uh, yeah, so many things. I, I put out my ninth record as a leader in September. With uh, It's actually the third record with this band called Double Wide. And that's been a lot of fun, just trying to keep that going. Two of those guys live in New Orleans, so we did a gig in New Orleans. We did a couple of gigs up here. And then I would say, you know, most of my time is really spent playing with other people, recording. So I'm playing with John Patitucci this weekend in the Dominican Republic. And then I have a bunch of things with Darcy James Argue's Big Band, which is in uh, something in Cranert at the Cranert Center in Champaign-Urbana. And then we're playing at BAM. I just made a record with Manuel Valera. So that's going to come out sometime uh, in December. And we're going to be performing with that. I did a kind of free improv thing last night with Ben Porowski and my old friend Glenn Patcha. So there's just kind of like always a million different things that's kind of how my life's been over the last few years yeah so your latest album charm you released on parade light mm-hmm. records that's your label correct yeah it's my it's the second one i put out on my own label so what is it like to be like you know we're at, you have that latitude musicians are doing this more and more how does it feel to be able to do this on your own well it's there's a lot of things that are good about it you know obviously the the whole music business is kind of a moving target everything has been changing uh, actually, the, the very first record I ever made, I did myself also. So it's a little bit like coming around full circle. But I think it remains to be seen if a you know an actual you know physical recorded uh, thing you know recorded music in some kind of physical entity is really a viable long term strategy. It seems like the the streaming thing seems like it's really rising. And I've been using it lately and realizing that it's actually seems to be the right solution for this moment. As much as I hate what it does to our economic prospects. I think that's just kind of how it's going. Let me go back to the beginning of your lineage before I get too much into your projects and what's going on lately. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was, I'm was i from North Carolina. I was born in Raleigh, but about two months after that, we moved to very rural North Carolina, a little town called Cameron. And I grew up in, it was 200 people in Cameron, and it was an hour away from anything big, you know, remotely big like Raleigh. And so I spent the first... 15 years of my life there, and then I uh, went to School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, and then went to New Orleans, and then came up to New York. So what was it like to grow up in North Carolina? What was this journey to New York like for you? What did these different regions give you musically and kind of feed that music part of you? Well, you know, rural South has its... Has its uh, has its craziness. I mean, my 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 dad was a preacher. Um, he's retired now, but he was a country preacher. My mom taught in the community college. I think you know. I grew up around a lot of characters. Um, uh, I grew up around a, a lot of beautiful nature. Um, you know. That, uh, also, interestingly, I mean, my I was born in '74, so 
um, I didn't think about this so much until I got a little older, but the, I was also sort of in a pretty early wave of integration in the South. Uh, my Both of my parents went to segregated high schools. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's worth thinking about that and all the, all the, uh, the hit that particular history and 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 also I went back to visit the school that I went to and it was it was I was sad to see that it was quite a bit more segregated you know the South has done a lot of things subsequently to sort of legally resegregate uh, so I don't know it was a, it was a it was a very interesting way to grow up and I think it sort of makes me feel a little different from from a lot of a lot of people up here but. I think New York, in a way, is a is a great place for people who seem who feel a little uprooted and are and are uh, you know they feel like they come from something but they're kind of uprooted from that and searching. So I feel kind of a, a kinship with a lot of those people, regardless of where they come from. So how did the music begin for you? When did you initially get into music, and what was that like? Well, there was always music around. Uh, there was music in church, and there was uh, uh, you know I played in in a school band when I was in sixth grade. I played piano lessons. I had piano lessons when I was five. Uh, although I wasn't, you know, I don't think I showed a like, particular promise necessarily, but, uh, you know, really I think music has something to do all the time and focus on. Uh, started because of the School of the Arts that's in North Carolina, and my brother, my older brother, was a very prodigious artist, and he got accepted to that school, and when I went to visit him, I, I quickly felt like I wanted to go there as much to sort of escape this little rural place as, as anything else. But at the time I was playing oboe and I got in as a classical oboist. Um, I think partly because there weren't so many oboists. I wasn't, I probably had a little promise, but I wasn't necessarily all that good. And then after a year, I convinced this uh, saxophone teacher there named James Hollett to sort of take me on as an experiment, as a, as a project. Cause I, by that time I was getting excited about jazz. So I, I tended to make progress when I got really inspired about something, but other than that, you know, not so much. So. Yeah. So as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Was it music or was it something else? No, I never had a, a, a real picture of a, the idea of what you you know what a professional musician would would be. Uh, you know, I, did, I didn't have I, I had I had lots of interests. I always did pretty good in school. You know, reasonably good. It was. Maybe the bar was a little low in this small community that I was in. It was a very small place. But, uh, you know, I was always curious and I read and, you know, I didn't really have a sense of of choosing a vocation. But once I went to the School of the Arts and I was around all these charged up people, um, that's when it started to kick in for me. So I was in high school, I guess, when I sort of felt the call of trying to play jazz and, and trying to be a saxophone player. Uh, so... So let's go to 2002, and you are in the Thelonious Monk competition. How many doors did that open up for you? Uh, very unclear. I mean, I came in second, which is I thought was a kind of amazing because one of my very big heroes, Seamus Blake, came in first, and I've always admired him and, and, and listened to him. So it was also the second time I did it. I, I did it. I did it before. I, I always forget if it was '96 or '97. Dave Pietro and I got into a, a discussion about this recently because he was there too. But I, I think either '96 or '97 I had done it before, and so I kind of had a sense of what I was up against when I did it the second time, and that's probably why I did it a little better. But uh, you know, there was an era when the month competition, like when Joshua Redman won it, when there was a 
sort of a major label uh, potential, uh, and a lot of things could happen. I, I got the sense when I did it both times that, you know, like John Gordon won it the first time. I don't think very much really changed for him. Uh, yeah. For me, it, I knew a lot of the people that were that were involved already, the, the other saxophone players. I mean, I think the the biggest, coolest thing about being in the Monk competition is just the 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 people that you meet and the extension of your musical family and I, I thought that was that was very useful to get to know some of those people but I, I knew a lot of them already I mean from a career standpoint it's very unclear I think certainly the 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 critical press maybe keeps an eye on you a little bit more you know they have a sense that maybe what you're doing is something they should pay attention to but um, you know in a, in a real tangible way I didn't get the sense that very much really changed. Well, and things have obviously taken off over 20 years. You have 100 album credits. You've been pretty prolific in creating. How do you how do you approach a live gig now versus in the beginning? Is there a profound difference to whether you're being you're nervous or you're thinking about certain things? What, what's happened over the years with that approach? Well, I guess it's a little different depending on if I'm playing with as a sideman or doing my own project. Uh, I don't know. Do you have one of those in mind? Or are you thinking of just in general? Kind of in a general thing, yeah. And even both of those, they can both be sliced off. Both, yeah. So, I mean, you know, when I'm working with other people, I mean, the interesting thing about our time versus previous times, I think, is that it's very, very unusual to be in a in a long-term working band. You know, the closest thing I had to that was when I worked with Charlie Hunter for five and a half years, and that was a really great experience. There are certain things that you really can't develop without having that, and so, you know, the the... You know, the real truth is most of the time when I'm working as a sideman, there's a kind of last-minute cramming sort of uh, like, let me just get this together good enough so that I can pull it, pull it off. I mean, that that's a big part of what my life is, is sort of like dealing with what's the very next thing and trying to prepare for it. So then, you know, as a, as a leader, it's a little different. I don't work as much as a leader, as a, even as I used to, but but as much as I'd like to. So, you know, as a leader, I have a little momentum and I'm thinking about the flow of the set and then, uh, you know, how, how I want to present things. But in, in some ways, it's similar in that, um, you know, the, I think the best way to develop in any project, whether it's with someone else or something you're leading, is, is, to, is to play lots and lots and lots of gigs in lots of different environments for lots of people. And, uh, you know, sadly, that, that doesn't, Really, I mean, I play gigs all the time, but they're always with different people, so it doesn't really feel like that kind of momentum is building. And so, speaking of being prolific and being around a lot of gigs and people, what is it like to gig with people like Charlie Hunter and Robert Glasper and Edward Simon and even Sting? What do you learn about being around acts that have had so much mileage in their rearview mirror? Ooh, it's a very hard thing to generalize because each one of those situations is very different. You know, I I think, um, you know, Charlie's Charlie's thing was more the the working band situation and and sort of he had a very independent way of thinking about how he wanted to pursue things. Still had basically gotten in the van and built an audience and was, you know, really liked playing low cover um, price kind of medium sized rock clubs for dancing audiences. That was educational in that I, I learned that there was an audience out there for instrumental music that was young and that was excited and, and uh, I hadn't seen so much of that. Uh, Glasper and I went to school together. I mean, Glasper, he's younger than me. When I started at the new school, 
Um, I was transferring in and I had taken some time off and I was a junior and he was an incoming freshman. And it's been really fun to watch him grow. I mean, he, he always had this kind of incredible sort of reckless in the moment um, excite, excitement, but he didn't have a whole lot of vocabulary at first. And then he, he you know, built all this. Um, he's a, just a very like incredibly quick learner and, uh, and has positioned himself in a really cool way. It's been cool to watch. I played on, I think it was his first record of the leader, which was professional. So it was just, a, you know, a lot of us that went to school at that time, it was a really special time. So him and Mike Moreno and people like that. Um, but I mean, yeah, everything is different. I mean, for a, I guess for a general sense, I, I might say that, uh, and this sort of applies to your previous question too. But but the you get you get more comfortable with the the kind of uh, just doing something different all the time. You get kind of used to it, and maybe are, are a little bit less sort of uh, worried about perfection and stuff like that. Well, you've obviously been taught not only by osmosis but in the classroom, and just gigging so much who who do you think has taught you the most about music oh, it's really hard to choose one person uh you know when I, I think of a question like that i really think about mentors and uh probably the most important mentor i had was james holick who was the saxophone teacher that kind of took that risk on me when i was in high school and um just in terms of overall musicianship and sort of uh attention to detail and caring about the craft of the saxophone and caring about learning and and then just being, just real, really having an artistry in the way he thought about music, it, that was a big pivot for me. And then, you know, as I got into the jazz world, it probably would be someone like Ellis Marsalis because he gave me my first gig and to play with older musicians who have that level of experience is, is um, you know, it's kind of harder for young people to even get that kind of chance. So that that was, you know, he and Harold Baptiste were basically running that program at UNO when I went there um, in the early 90s. And that that totally transformed everything for me, just, you know, watching them. And a lot of the way they teach is, is uh, it's an old-school kind of apprenticeship. Like, you play with them and you, you learn from experience. And uh, that was a really great opportunity for me. And, then, you know, then subsequently so many people after that in school and everything. But those would probably be if I had to choose, you know, because it, it was a really early time and a really formative time. So along those lines, you've played with a lot of people that would, you know, the world would consider music heroes. Who do you consider your jazz heroes, who you've looked up to that have influenced who you are and how you've developed as a musician? Uh, people I know, or you mean people from history? Yeah, history, or even people that you know that have just had a profound impact on the way you've approached music. Well, wow. You know, in addition to those two, then, you know, I was always very interested in the uh, you know, essentially going to New Orleans, I was I was always coming out of a pretty um, uh, traditional outlook uh, in the beginning. So uh, Charlie Parker and and Sonny Rollins and Dexter Gordon and uh, John Coltrane and Joe Henderson, all those people, as far as saxophone, were very influential. Uh, you know, and then some of, some amazing New Orleans musicians like James Black, the drummer, and uh, James Booker and uh, Professor Longhair, uh, people like that were influential during that time. And then, and then, you know, interestingly, people like, uh, Nicholas Payton, who he's only a year older than me, but I spent a tremendous amount of time around him in my formative years. And he, he helped to kind of, uh, 
reorient me as to what what was possible. I mean, I think all of us have spent time in New Orleans in that period in the '90s to feel a really like it was a really special time. But Nicholas played a big part in that, and he, you know, the things that we got to witness and sort of how he just watching him play and play all the instruments and everything was really mind blowing. I and mean, he was very young at that time too. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm always trying to listen to things, so it's really hard to <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, because yeah. 25 years of study, and you know, if you catch me any given year, I'll probably tell you that it's something different. You know, tons of music from Brazil. And- this next question might needle things down just a little bit. I'm not trying okay. to compartmentalize anything, but what <laughs> what I what I want to ask you is this: if you could go back in time, you know, being here in Kansas City, 18 and Vine had this very special lore of people that came through, and I always think, man, if I could have been there to ca- catch Count Basie or Charlie hmm. Parker, one of these guys. If you could go back in time in that proverbial DeLorean and see a show, hmm. where would you go and who would you want to see? Didn't they actually go to this year? That was a, I saw something about that. In Back to the Future, they what? <laughs> this was this was the future that they went to. This particular, we just passed it. The date and everything, I think we just passed. Yeah, question. they went to they went to 2015 and the Cubs won the World Series, but actually the Royals did. So it's been kind of cool for. Oh yeah! Congratulations, man! Yeah, you guys thanks. must just be euphoric. Oh my god! Oh, it's beautiful out here. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Everybody's still floating. I'm sure. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Well, sure. man, what a question. Um, yeah, time travel. What a nice thing to think about, but also also terrifying. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I would have loved to have heard. I would have loved to have heard Charlie Parker. Um, I would have loved to have heard Clifford Brown. I would have loved to have heard John Coltrane's classic quartet, 60s. I would have loved to have heard Miles' uh, group in the 60s with Herbie and Tony and Ron and Wayne. Um, I would have loved to have heard so many things. Uh, it's really hard to even think about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would love to have just been able to experience um, – you know the the ecosystem in the in in the like sort of the fifties transitioning into the sixties and and the, just the everything about that time uh that was so there was so much upheaval on the horizon uh but the music was so supercharged so i mean you know to have to to go here like early ornette and you know but also go here the Coltrane's band and also hear Louis Armstrong's band all the same Duke Ellington's group in the same year. That would have been that would have been amazing. Well, I'm going to open up a, a little bit of a portal here and ask you kind of a general <laughs> question. Okay. Let me know your your person that's dedicated your life to music and more specifically jazz. Why do you love jazz? You know, with most things that you really love, it, it just something just you know comes over you. You know, I think it's like why people talk about a calling or something. I mean, when I was a kid and I heard it. Uh, something spoke to me. I don't know how to explain it other than that, but it it it, it was something about it felt like magic, you know. And there was something about that. Um uh, I don't know. And then maybe the, the the vocal quality of it and the singing quality of it. And the, but what's interesting about that question is that there's a lot of discourse. I hear a lot of people talk about how jazz is so hard to love, you know, or that, oh, man, you need a Ph.D. to study that, or this needs to be difficult, you know. That's for sophisticated ears. And, uh, I mean, I was the definition of 
unsophisticated when I first heard jazz. I was a bumpkin. You know, I mean, I was a, I was not sophisticated at all. I was just a country dude, and I loved it. So, yeah, I'm always a little mystified by the the idea that you know I don't understand how that idea took off or why people think that way. It, it never crossed my mind at that time that you would need to know everything about it in order to enjoy it. And it's weird to me that people still feel that way. It's interesting. I've always felt like I'm uh, have still have a hard time understanding how why people feel that way. But uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the highbrow stereotypes odd to me because when you hear "Kind of Blue," it hits you on a very primal level. There's nothing about that that's over intellectualized. It's it's music that it's just music. I mean, music hits you on a, on a primal yeah. level. So yeah. Right, I mean, it makes you want to cry. I mean, it's emotional. It makes you feel powerful, powerful things. And it's like the, the, I'm very intellectually curious. I love trying to figure out things. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, why you love something, it's kind of usually just like that. It just hits you in an emotional way, and that's, that's it. Yeah, well, it's like falling in love. When you ask people when they truly fall in love, yeah. what is it about? And it's like that you can't explain it. It's this. It's hard. Yeah, it's the reason why asteroids don't hit us on a daily basis. They just go around our atmosphere, and we're lucky every day, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question to think about as you get older. I'm in my early 40s, so uh, I, I'm still, you know, when you called, I was practicing. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. just, I'm still kind of like, uh, um, you know, obsessed. Yeah. And it's been a long time. So, and, you know, I don't I have sort of no sense of like uh but somehow you sort of stop at some point or that i don't know it's, it's i still feel kind of like excited and thrilled to, to play and to try to discover new things absolutely well and speaking of as a person on a daily basis what's the greatest thing for you about waking up every day <laughs> well in the, in the, right when i wake up is having a really good cup of coffee that is yeah. probably the best thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> honestly, honestly, the very fact that we wake up every day is great. I mean, it's just like the, the idea that we have another chance. You know, to me, it's a, it's a, I don't take that for granted at all. So just, uh, I just feel lucky that, that uh, I get the chance to wake up one more day, give it another shot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so everybody has their perception of who you are. Your family does. Your friends right. do people you perform to, those in business. But from from your perspective, the way you feel this world, who do you think you are? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody ever gave a sufficient answer to that? Uh, uh, they're always who interesting. Do you, just who do you think you are? Yeah. You know, it's a really excellent question. I like to think of myself as a, as a, you know, a seeker, someone who is primarily in love with learning. And, uh, you know, I don't always attain that, that high level as I would like to, but I've never been so um, interested in sort of style or having a style, <laughs> if that makes any sense, or talking about my style. I'm also not particularly interested in artistry or being an artist, uh, but I am interested in growing um, and, and trying to learn more and, and hopefully not not getting stuck in a in a clear definition of what it is that I, who it is I am and who it is I'm supposed to be, you know, but from a, you know, identity standpoint, I'm definitely colored by growing up in the South and growing up in the church and, 
you know, and living in New York. So I, I always sort of think of myself as someone pulled in a, in a really kind of a, a lot of different directions. Someone who is has been, you know, sort of uprooted, but is 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 hopeful that that leads to growth. You know, still trying to do that. Yeah, that's that's a great answer. It's a great way to. That was my final question. It's a great way to come hmm. and thank. Hey, John, man, this is a pleasure. I appreciate you taking some time out. Well, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you thinking of me. Absolutely, man. Good luck out there. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to John Ellis for his very cool jazz story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.